Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Now we will address the second method of prayer study called In the Text. This approach is a text-centered approach rather than author-centered like the last one. That is, we're not looking at circumstances behind the writing of the prayer or the contexts, but instead we are examining the text of the passage itself. That means asking questions about genre, structure, and looking for literary elements. If you remember anything from any old English literature classes, now is when it will come in handy. Literary analysis is a complex and broad area of study but the following gives you an idea of how it works. Consider a short story. There was an actual person who wrote it, who lived in an actual world, and who was writing for a particular reader or readers. Yet there's also the world that exists inside the story itself. There's an author or a narrator who may be different from the real author. Think about a movie or a book with a narrator. The person who wrote the screenplay or book is probably different from the fictional person who narrates it. The world of the story can also be entirely different from the real world of the author. Again, think of a movie or a book that takes place in the future or in a fantasy land. But even if it takes place in the real world, it still has its own character. There also may be an implied reader who is not the same as the real reader. For example, consider the classic novel Moby Dick by Herman Melville. While Melville is the real author, the guy who actually wrote the story, the novel, the story purports to be told by Ishmael a sailor writing about the captain of a whaling ship. The world in the story is quite similar to Melville's world, but not exactly. The boat, the fishermen, and other items did not really exist in his world. He was basing them on real people and real places and real things. So Melville created a story world based on his real world on sailing legends about a monstrous whale. On the other hand, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings novels take place in a world entirely created by the real author, Tolkien. In both of those books, there does not appear to be any implied reader. But consider a non-fiction book, The Screwtape Letters, written by Tolkien's friend C.S. Lewis. The book is purportedly a series of letters from a chief demon to a novice demon, explaining how to turn humans away from God. The purported reader, we call this the narratee, is the novice demon. But of course, the real reader is people like you and I who pick up the book to read it. Before we study any biblical prayer, we should determine the genre of the book in which it is found. When we receive a letter, we unconsciously read it differently depending on its genre. If the letter is from an electric company demanding payment, I would read that differently than if it were a letter from a long-lost friend. You read a love letter with different suppositions than a legal letter, or at least I hope you do. We do not read poems the same way we read a newspaper article. It should be no different when we read a prayer in the book of the Bible. Regarding overall genres, the Bible contains narratives, so parts of Exodus, the book of Ruth, the book of Acts, for example. It contains poetry, the Psalms, almost all of Job, some of the prayers in the New Testament letters, parts of Revelation, and then regulations or laws, mostly parts of Deuteronomy and Numbers. But there are other genres and subgenres as well. Here are a few. Wisdom literature, for example, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, which asks questions or makes statements about the meaning and purpose of life, either practically or philosophically. There is prophetic literature, and these are words of God's representatives to his people guiding them and warning them. It's written in a very different style, 
And these are the books such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, and so on. The four Gospels are a bit of a genre on their own. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are narratives, but they're not purely biography or history. The material is arranged and told in a way to emphasize the meaning of Jesus' life more than just a strict chronology of events and everything that happened. A fourth style is the ancient genre. Some sections of Kings include this, Chronicles, and of course the 21 letters in the New Testament and parts of Revelation. Though they don't look like letters that we write, the structure and the form and the content is different, they are written in the way that ancient people wrote letters and expected letters to look like. Another major genre is apocalyptic literature. Daniel is this, as well as part of Mark 13, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation. This is a unique and distinctive type of writing, all written over about a 400-year period in times of great suffering and distress for Jews and Christians. These writings were meant to give a big-picture view of the world and its events, to encourage those who were suffering to know that God was in control, even if it didn't look like it. The prayers embedded in these various genres are often connected to the genre in their purpose, meaning, and sometimes even the structure in their own genre. Prayers can include a narrative, such as this section, from the lengthy praise and thanksgiving prayer in Judges 5, 21-31. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens poured, the clouds indeed poured water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. Many prayers contain poetry, of course, especially those of the Psalms, or this praise prayer of victory after God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptian army, Exodus 17. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Literary analysis of the passages in which prayers occur asks, why is it written this way? By exploring that question, we take the Bible seriously and gain more profound insights into its intended meaning. Those who wrote down the words of the Bible employed these genres and other literary techniques, just as we do when we're writing, even if we sometimes don't even realize we're doing it. We know conventions. There are many more subgenres and techniques than described, but this list will give you an idea of how literary analysis works and how prayers work and what to look for. Metaphors. The Bible is filled with metaphorical language. A metaphor is a rhetorical device where a writer or a speaker uses an unrelated idea or thing to explain the meaning of something else. It is used because the unrelated thing has some characteristics that are the same as the main subject. Light and darkness are often used in the Bible as ways of understanding spiritual insight or salvation, whereas darkness refers to spiritual blindness, sinfulness, or cutting off. Note the use of darkness in this prayer from 1 Samuel 2. This is Hannah's praise prayer. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might does one prevail. On a more positive note, here is a call to prayer from Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. There are three metaphors in that verse, Lamb, Bride, and marriage. Jesus is not actually a lamb, but the metaphor means that he is a sacrifice for sin and deliverance like the lamb of the Passover celebration. The church is not really a bride, 
but as the partner of the groom, Jesus, who will nurture, care for, and protect his church. Finally, the marriage is a metaphor for the union of the church and Jesus in heaven at the end of time. Symbols A literary symbol is similar to a metaphor, so much that many use them interchangeably. But in strict terms, a symbol is not used rhetorically, but is a specific thing that directly represents another thing. A metaphor is a more complex way of presenting one thing as another. A symbol often cuts across time and setting and is used by larger groups of writers or speakers, unlike a strict metaphor which is usually invented by a writer or a speaker. For example, the term sheep is often used as a symbol for the followers of God. Sheep gather and move in herds and are dependent upon a herder to care for and direct them. So this became a natural symbol for devoted followers. So then Jesus becomes the good shepherd, and the church is a flock of sheep who hear his voice, who recognize him, and follow him. See Matthew 9, 36, 10, 6, 26, 31, John 10, 11, 16, and 26. An excellent example of a symbol is found in a series of prayers from 2 Kings 6. In the first one, verses 17 and 18, Elisha's servant is afraid because they're surrounded by enemies. Elijah prays, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. The servant then becomes aware that a vast army of God stands behind and around all the enemies. So while he sees them physically, it's also a symbol of spiritual insight. He had to see physically before he was able to see spiritually and believe, whereas Elisha already knew that God was with him. And Elijah prays again, Strike this, people, please, with blindness. The enemies are literally blinded, but they're also spiritually blinded because they're fighting against God. So they are taken to the capital city to be put under guard. Once there, he prays again, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they may see. After the prayer, the soldiers can see physically, but more importantly, they have seen the power of God. So sight is being used as a symbol in the story. Parallelism is another technique found often in the Bible, very common in all ancient writings, especially Hebrew literature, but found in Greek manuscripts as well. This is where one line parallels a second, either in its subject, thought, structure, or content, and often this is how poetry is written in the Bible. For example, Mark 11, 9-10 reads, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is, blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Each begins with the same word, and describes what it is that is blessed. Parallelism is used to emphasize an idea, a word, a phrase, but it has also made it easier to learn in a culture where books and writings were not readily available. It's easier to memorize parallel similarities than it is just a random narrative. It's not only the poetic prayers that include parallelism, other genres do as well. Note the complex parallelism of words and similar ideas in the prayer hymn found in the letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Going in the text allows us to dig deeper into a passage or a book by treating it for what it really is, for how God preserved it in written literature. Taking God's word seriously, we can ask about its genre, subgenre, and what we might learn about literary devices and structure. Together with other methods, this approach goes a long way to helping us enrich our own prayers.
Thank you for listening. See the notes accompanying this podcast for more information. Learn more about the Praying Through the Bible Project on our website, prayingthroughthebible.com. That's T-H-R-U. If you are a subscriber, thank you. If not, please consider becoming one. Feel free to get in touch through the comments or on our website. Until next time, blessings on all of you.